Hello again. The following is an audio-only version of my video of the Sundance London 2020 Film Festival. As such, this may sound slightly different to my other podcast episodes, but because this is entirely me talking to camera, there won't be any visuals to distract from the audio here. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Sundance London 2020 Projector Special. That's right, I'm finally covering a film festival. That's actually something that I've wanted to do for a long time, to go to a film festival and watch watch and review all the movies there. I'd imagine that going a little bit differently than how things have gone. As usual with 2020, many film festivals can't be held in person this year due to COVID-19, so a lot of them have gone virtual over the internet. And for someone like me, that presents an unusual amount of opportunity. Normally, I wouldn't have had access to these festivals because of travel expenses and distance. It was impractical. Whereas because they're now over the internet, I can watch these films from the comfort of my own home. And this presents something new and exciting for me, and for you as well, hopefully. And if you would like to see me do more things like this, then definitely say so in the comments, because maybe I can do this a couple more times before the year is out. Sundance London has been held for quite a few years now. They take a selection of the films that premiered at Sundance back in January and give them screenings in London ahead of their UK releases. This year, they took a selection of three films, which they showed on three consecutive nights which were Uncle Frank, Luxor, and Boy's State, all of which are going to be reviewed in this episode. First up, Paul Bettany and Sophia Lillis in Uncle Frank. Set in 1973, Beth Bledsoe, played by Sophia Lillis, has left her small southern town of Creekwood to follow in the footsteps of her uncle Frank, played by Paul Bettany, a professor at NYU. There, Beth discovers that her uncle is gay, a secret that he is kept from his family, and lives with his Saudi Arabian lover Wally, played by Peter McDissie. When Frank learns that his bigoted father, Daddy Mac, played by Stephen Roos, has died, he and Beth journey back to Creekwood to attend his funeral, along with Wally, where Frank will finally confront his past. Uncle Frank is written and directed by the openly gay Alan Ball, best known for his TV successes like Six Feet Under and True Blood, although he has had some success in the film world, having written the screenplay for American Beauty. And the film is very loosely inspired by the experiences of Ball's father. That is where Uncle Frank comes from. There's a conversation about halfway through the film where Beth and Wally are talking in the car together and Beth says that she's nice. And Wally says that he's not interested in that. He's interested in what's going on underneath it. And that gets to the heart of what Uncle Frank is about. It's about what people hide from their friends and their families. What secrets do they keep underneath the positive exterior? And a good example of this is the way that we meet Frank at the beginning of the film and immediately he's an engaging presence. He stands out from the rest of his family. He's kind, well-spoken, very sharply dressed, intellectual, and takes a genuine interest in Beth. He becomes a mentor to her and inspires her. That's why she gravitates towards him. And over the course of the film, we peel back the layers. We get to know him more and more. Obviously, we have the initial reveal of his sexuality, but that's only the start of it. And as the film goes on, it becomes comes clear that the reason that Frank is so distant from the rest of his family, both figuratively and literally, is that there's clearly a lot of painful memories there that he's tried to suppress as best as he can, and having to go back there is bringing all those things back up 
to the surface, especially in the way the character's alcoholism starts to reappear. It's mentioned that he's had problems in the past, especially given the way that Wally seems all too familiar with this kind of behaviour. And Bethany gives a brilliant performance as the character sinks deeper and deeper into his own self-loathing in a way that's genuinely tragic and accompanied by key flashbacks that explain why Frank is the way that he is and why he holds himself so guilty a lot of the time. This is a movie that's very much meant for a mainstream accessible audience. It tackles LGBT issues in the same way that racism is handled in something like Hidden Figures or what especially came to my mind, Green Book. Admittedly, that's largely because the middle act of Uncle Frank is a road movie and it's also a comparison that doesn't really do it a lot of favours. At least, to Uncle Frank's credit, it's not as cartoonish and simplified as Green Book was. I think that Green Book is very much almost a caricature of this kind of movie, but Uncle Frank is very much an example of this particular middle-brow prestige drama about prejudice that very much tries to be inoffensive but likeable. And to its credit, it largely succeeds at that. But I do think that some audiences will like a movie that maybe was a bit more confrontational about the issues that it addresses and tries to challenge its audience, or at least tries to be a little less conventional than this movie is. It feels like I have pretty much seen this movie with just some of the details changed, which is fairly surprising given Alan Ball's writing. It does feel like it plays itself safe a lot of the time. A big positive for the film is that it has a great supporting cast. Steve Zahn and Judy Greer as Frank's brother and sister-in-law, respectively. Margot Martindale as Frank's mother. Stephen Root is on especially despicable form as Frank's abusive father, but perhaps the biggest scene stealer is Ball's partner, Peter McDissie, in the role of Wally. He's very funny, but also sells the dramatic material later on. He and Bethany have great chemistry together that sells their relationship. You care about those characters, and when Frank mistreats Wally, you genuinely feel for him, but also understand the love that those two characters share. Wally is also significant in the fact that his character is a Muslim and obviously he's had to leave his world behind because he cannot come out as a gay man because otherwise he will be executed. And there is again tying back into that theme of secrets. And so the movie touches upon again the issues of persecution and prejudice that gay people have and still have to this day. The actors very wisely decide to underplay the material because the script for the movie does hew a little bit close to melodramatic at times. There are big soapy twists and turns, but luckily they still make it feel grounded because they're not playing to the same level as the script is. And sometimes that can make the movie feel a little bit uneven. About two-thirds of the way through, the movie starts getting very dark and it takes a turn where it feels like it might end on a particularly down note, and the movie doesn't really know what to do at that point, so when it suddenly snaps out of it, 
it feels very odd and jarring. It feels especially abrupt. But mostly, the movie has a fairly good handle on its tone overall. If anyone gets the short shrift here, it's unfortunately Sophia Lewis. It's nice to see her stretching and proving that she's more than Beverly from It, but the movie doesn't know what to do with her character. The way that it starts off, Beth is the narrator and POV character. We see a lot of the first half of the film through her eyes. And Lilith is well cast. She's very quiet and awkward, but she's also feisty, which is fitting for a character who is unworldly, but perceptive at the same time. To a certain extent, she picks up on Frank's pain. But around the halfway point, the shift in focus from Beth to Frank leaves Beth with not a whole lot to do. For a lot of the second half of the movie, Lilith just seems to be standing around. She's mostly there, almost disappearing into the background at certain points. Beth stops being an active character in the plot a lot of the time, which is a real shame and gives Lilith virtually nothing to do, unfortunately. Generally, though, I enjoyed Uncle Frank, even if it is very formulaic and does have some overall tropes at times, but the cast is what makes it work. It's not an especially groundbreaking movie. It feels like it could be made any time over the last 20 years or so, but it's a gentle story about acceptance and self-acceptance overall. You can see this in the way the film concludes, which is maybe a little bit easy, bordering on wish fulfillment, but it's meant to be a supportive, empowering movie. It's meant to be a big crowd pleaser, and I think it succeeds at that count. Uncle Frank will be on Amazon Prime this Thanksgiving. Next up, Andrea Riseborough goes to Egypt in Luxor. Aid worker Hannah, played by Andrea Riseborough, returns to the Egyptian city of Luxor to stay at the Winter Palace, haunted by her experiences on the Jordanian-Syrian border, tending to those injured in the Syrian war. She wanders around the city and explores the nearby historical sites alone, and by chance, encounters her former lover, Sultan, played by Karim Salah, an archaeologist on a ferry crossing. They rekindle their relationship but can Hannah find peace in her past? Luxor is the second film helmed by British director Zaina Dara, and it's largely a showcase for Andrea Riseborough, who is in every single scene of this movie. As you would expect, Riseborough is fantastic. As soon as Hannah appears on screen, you can tell that she's someone that's still trying to comprehend her experiences. She's seen things that no one should ever witness, and those horrors of war are very much implied in her expressions. She's still going through a lot of grief, and it's hardened her in some way. She's a bit more of a jaded, cynical person, and she's trying to assess where she goes from here. And so the fact that she's now back in Luxor is very significant. The city is almost a character in its own right, because not only does it have a lot of history, both literally, but it also does so for Hannah. She's been here before. People recognize her and know her. The fact that she's even staying in the Winter Palace in the first place is because she's stayed there before. And she almost likes the fact that it's a bit faded around the edges. But a lot of the time, we follow Hannah as she explores around the city and the nearby historical sites and the temples. She's deliberately trying to disassociate herself from other people because it's her best way of trying to 
explore these feelings that she's got at the same time and especially in the historical sites try to connect with them almost in a way that makes them feel overwhelming there are moments where she's looking around the sites and she seems to have this kind of spiritual connection to them you can hear whisperings and voices going on in hannah's head and it feels like she's a part of that and it gives her some respite it gives her some solace one of the film's biggest virtues is its photography in large part because they really shoot this on location in egypt and you can clearly tell because it has that kind of lived in authenticity it feels feels like a real bustling city in a way that doesn't feel overly touristy which is quite an accomplishment given that it spends a lot of time in those hot spots but instead it feels like we're following someone that knows their way around it and also the photography is genuinely beautiful at times especially in the temples and the historical sites and the tombs which all feel like places that you'd want to lose yourself in and clearly Hannah wants to do that they really do look incredibly photogenic and Luxor looks like a fairly captivating city to be around both having a lot of significant past but also feeling quite modern in a number of ways as well unfortunately though it does feel like you're just watching riseborough just go around to a lot of digs and tombs for much of the running time the big problem with luxor is that it doesn't have a lot of direction to it and i know this is meant to be a character study and it's meant to be very subtle and internalized but it's those things to an absolute fault to the extent where the audience has very little to hold on to and even less to engage with at points it feels like you're watching luxor behind plate glass the movie is so guarded for no real reason it holds back even the most basic information about the characters so what is it that we're meant to find so compelling about the movie and i do think that while it doesn't need to have clumsy expository dialogue where the characters explain every emotion that they feel and there are a couple of scenes where they very briefly explain what's happening in the plot my synopsis is probably a clearer explanation of what's actually happening in this movie than watching it and that's not a good thing at all i mentioned how the character has served on the jordanian syrian border and that makes it sound like it's a very heavy movie that's going to be interacting with that subject it's not because aside from a couple of moments where the character mentions it in an almost offhanded way it doesn't feel like that's actually part of the movie it feels like that could have been anything and that feels like a major fault if you're not going to confront that if you're not going to make that a major part of your film then why is it there to begin with there's no moment where the character has something like a flashback or something like that and it's maybe good that it avoids a cliche but i would have thought that it came to some sort of dramatic moment and luxor always feels like a movie that is about two seconds away from going somewhere interesting but then cuts to another seemingly unrelated scene a lot of the time it feels very episodic 
mostly it just feels like travelogue. There are a couple of scenes that are very, very well played, but then go into nothing. There's a moment where Hannah starts dancing, and it's a rare uninhibited moment for that character that's almost unintentionally amusing. It's very, very awkward. And then the next scene, she just completely collapses into tears. And that is a brilliant moment of acting from Riceborough. But where does it go? Because the scene cuts away, and then the next morning... She's back to her normal self. You would think that that would lead into her talking about her experiences, but no, it just hangs there. The movie does pick up a bit once Sultan enters it, partly because it gives Hannah another character to interact with, but also that romantic element comes to the forefront. And that's one of the more intriguing aspects of the film. These two characters that loved each other in the past, reconciling that with who they are now, and seeing if they can have some kind of future together, where they can make things better this time out. Unfortunately, the movie keeps moving this onto the sidelines. Again, like many aspects of it, it's understated to its own detriment. And also, the two performers don't quite have that romantic spark that you would really need to make this the central focus of your movie. And that is a real shame. I think in a better film, this would have added a real emotional context that gave something for the audience to connect with in spite of the fact that the character is very closed off. Instead, it feels like another element that doesn't quite land properly. And so what ends up happening is that the movie just feels laborious a lot of the time. Even though this is the shortest out of any of the movies that I'm reviewing in this episode, it certainly felt like the longest. Even at 88 minutes, this feels underwritten and overstretched, and it only shows that there's so much a good performance can really do. It feels like Riseborough is carrying the entire weight of this movie on her shoulders, and there's virtually nothing else going on around her. I can't recommend Luxor. It's the kind of slow, dry film that people dread at film festivals that get released into art houses and quickly forgotten. I found it to be genuinely hard work a lot of the time. This is a movie that looks very nice, but is deeply dull. And I do have to say that it's implicit to the point where it starts to genuinely become tiresome, and what it does say, it barely raises above a whisper. Luxor will be released in UK cinemas in November. Next up, the documentary, Boy State. Boy State is a program run by the American Legion Auxiliary that gathers a thousand politically-minded high school seniors in every state to create their own government. There, they are separated into nationalists and federalists, electing their chairman and coming up with policies in a mock election designed to teach them how the political system works. The documentary focuses on the program in Texas in 2018, placing the spotlight on five teenagers, Ben, Stephen, Renee, Robert, and Eddie, and their experiences in the program 
program in a tight gubernatorial race. Boy State is from the same documentary team that made The Overnighters and was one of the big hits at Sundance this year. It won the Grand Jury Prize in the documentary strand and is set to be one of the big breakout documentaries of the year in general, in large part because, of course, 2020 is a US presidential election year. Now, I do have to admit that I have a slight disadvantage in reviewing this, being that I'm a Brit. It's not really my politics. I do have a lot of familiarity with American politics, but certainly I think that I don't have the same level of attachment or understanding of nuance as someone who is native to America. And thus that might explain, while it is a good documentary, I'm not quite as rapturously enthusiastic as maybe some other viewers have been. I don't have quite the same level of connection to the material as some others do, especially if you come from the US. The documentary is essentially politics in microcosm in much the same way as the program itself is, in that it takes a whole bunch of teenagers from both sides of the political spectrum, throws them all together at once in a big melting pot, and sees how that changes and shapes and moulds them, but also gives them a real sense of how politics actually plays in the real world. And in that sense, it's seen as this important stepping stone in a potentially prestigious political career. The opening credits even remind us of this, showing various notable people that have participated in boy state programs in the past, including Dick Cheney, Rush Limbaugh, and Bill Clinton. And so there is a sense that we are watching the next generation here, that these are the people that are going to be picking up the baton and potentially soothing the divisive political landscape, as they note at the beginning of the documentary, those differences between those two sides of the political aisle have only become more entrenched in recent years, and but more so since the documentary has been filmed. And in that way, I felt hopeful at certain points of the documentary but also very despairing at the same time. There's definitely things that make you optimistic, but also deeply fearful at the same time. And I do think that that's by intention. The movie does try to present a relatively balanced view of how things are going. It definitely tries to give both sides equal billing over the course of the film. That isn't strictly 100% true because there is more attention placed on the nationalists, but I think that's because that's where the more dramatic side of the material lays, whereas the federalists, who are more openly on the sort of right-wing side of politics, there's much less sort of infighting between them, whereas the nationalists, because you've obviously got more left-wing people going up against more right-wing people, there is those tensions going on at play here. What's perhaps not surprising about the film is that there is a lot of testosterone on display. This is a room full of rowdy teenage boys and yes, occasionally they do joke around and suggest nonsense bills simply for the absurdity of it, but actually what surprised me is how seriously most of them were taking this. It's clear that many of them were taking this as a practice run for their own political aspirations, and clearly they hold a lot of firm convictions, which is admirable, 
but you also worry about them and the politics that they've clearly absorbed from what's going on around them. This, of course, is taking place in very conservative Texas, and so the big issues going on here are gun control and abortion, the latter of which being especially troubling, given that this is a room entirely made up of teenage boys, and there's obviously no girl to actually defend those positions. But I think the movie finds its kind of heroes in The Outsiders, in that you have Stephen and you have Renee. Stephen, in particular, becomes almost the hero of the film. He is a son of a Mexican immigrant, and he is someone that is running this very progressive campaign. And it's in a way where he really wins over people. He knows how to play to the sort of right-wing elements of his audience, but make it in a way that feels like he's appealing. He feels like a very personable person, and also, he feels like a genuine positive force. You can tell that the filmmakers really do like him because they make him such a key focus in the documentary. To a lesser extent, you also see that with Renee, who becomes the chairman of the nationalist side. He is also someone that has come outside of Texas. He mentions that he's come from Chicago, moved down from there, and mentions how Boy State is perhaps the most white people he's ever been around at this time. But he mentions how Boy State also serves as a good way of trying to get out of the bubble that he's been in and trying to interact with that environment. But it does seem like, to a certain extent, there is hostility going on, especially given that in the nationalist camp, there is a campaign going on to try and oust him from being the chairman. And also, later on, it turns into really nasty bullying, for at least for a brief moment. I think what's telling is that a lot of the actual political battles in this film take place partially on social media. They really make a big deal out of creating Instagram accounts and things like that, which represents, again, how much politics has moved into that area and how much it's trying to divide us in that way. It becomes like this just sort of battleground over these social media places. But also, more alarmingly, they take on these toxic politics. One of the other main focuses of the documentary is Ben, a double amputee who is quite right-wing. He mentions that he's a big fan of Ronald Reagan, proudly showing a doll of him to the documentary crew. He becomes the chairman for the Federalists, and he helps organise what is essentially a smear campaign and engages in a lot of dirty tactics, tries to claim that his voice is being suppressed, that the party is being suppressed by the nationalists, especially when Rene steps into a debate and it feels like they're doing a lot of tactics that they've seen in recent politics and it does make you slightly despair it makes you wonder if politics can quite go back to the way it has been because it feels like it's less about debating individual policies and more about personal attacks and slights. And in that way, Boy State definitely gets the audience talking. It definitely makes you thoughtful about the political issues, essentially because we're seeing these things 
even on a fairly small localized level like this. That being said, at least he's honest about his own convictions, which is maybe not so true about certain other members. Take, for example, Robert, who tries to apply to be the nationalist governor, and he does so on a platform that is very populist, trying to play to the crowd, but he admits to the crew that's not actually his own politics, but he'll say those things if he wants to win. What I really took from this documentary is that it seems like a lot of people are more interested in winning than anything else, than really about the integrity of their own politics, although it perhaps says something that I think that people recognise that he is being slightly disingenuous over the course of the documentary. It's clear that Stephen has a lot more support behind him simply because not only is he a good speaker, but he is completely genuine and he really wins over people and people genuinely come up to him and admire him, even if they don't necessarily support his politics. And the fact that we're seeing people from both sides of the political spectrum share the same space and actually support each other does at least provide a kind of silver lining that there is maybe still some hope after all. Maybe. In terms of the filmmaking itself, the documentary is very well produced. It's very slick, very snappy. In fact, the editing is top-notch. It's clear that they had a lot of people working multiple cameras at the same time. They had a lot of coverage, which gives them very easy access to cut-around scenes. Although, occasionally, I did get a little bit concerned because it's so highly edited, whether some elements of it might have been constructed some of it does feel maybe slightly artificial but that's a small point i think overall it manages to be very compelling especially again if you're of an american audience i think you will very quickly get absorbed because the way that focuses on the individuals on this film, you can't help but connect with their stories, especially Stevens. And again, the documentary, I think, shows its most interesting techniques around that character. There's a moment where he's hesitating as he's about to perform a speech, and we see what is essentially a POV shot of the microphone with the crowd behind it, which is something that you'd more commonly see in a narrative feature. It's a more subjective shot that they clearly picked up later, but it's a tool that works in this documentary, even if the fact that it is being used here does maybe cause me a little bit of alarm in its own right. Overall, though, Boy State is a strong documentary that offers a timely window into the state of American politics and where it might be potentially leading in the future. I think that it's very well produced and very broadly appealing. I can definitely see this being an extremely watchable documentary, especially for American viewers, but I recommend it with the caveat that if you're outside of America, it might not have the same level of appeal, but I do think the way that it connects with the people participating in it, it manages to make us care about their stories and potentially where they might go in the future, especially the likes of Stephen and Renee. 
Boy State will be released on Friday, August 14th by A24 and Apple TV+. If you enjoyed my festival coverage, then you can support my work over at my Patreon, where you can see my reviews early, among other perks, including access to my Discord server, and maybe I could cover more festivals in the future, like Fright Fest or London Film Festival later in the year, but that all depends on how much support and how much success this episode has. Until next time, I'm Matthew Burke, fading out. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early, among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, Inigo Almandos, Tim Tark, G Viral, Henry Jacob, Manuel Jonan, Jonah Gustafson, Harry Baker, Tom Oliver Maddox. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag Film Brain Podcast.